Some of you were out of town last weekend for the 4th of July. I trust you enjoyed the wonderful family time. Welcome back. As I said last week, it's a delight for me to be back with old friends and to make some new friends. You've obviously been well fed by Pastor Bill and John and Don and the rest of the team here. It crossed my mind that this might seem like something of a retro month for some of you. Young pastors today don't wear suit coats and ties, they don't generally stand behind pulpits, and they don't preach for 40 minutes. And I understand their rationale. You know, they want to connect with their audience that is coming to church increasingly casual. But I need a coat to hide my stomach. And uh, they ditch the pulpit, but I need it to lean on and to hold my notes, which are extensive, since I can't remember what I was going to say. And I'll probably keep preaching for 40 minutes until someone falls out of their pew like poor Eutychus did out of the window when Paul preached too long. I trust you'll be gracious. I'm too old to change, you know. Let me briefly review where we've been and where we're going. We're doing a series of four biographical sermons on the life of Joseph. Last Sunday, our topic was when parents play favorites. We saw the drastic results in the life of Jacob's family from dysfunction, and we urged us to renounce favoritism and to heal the dysfunction that is in our families before it destroys us. Today, we're going to move to Genesis 39 and the topic when temptation comes in like a flood. I read of a wife who went to lunch with 11 other women. They were taking a French course together, and all their children were in school. One rather bold type among these women spoke up and said, How many of you have been faithful throughout your marriage? Only one woman raised her hand. This wife related the conversation to her husband when she got home and admitted she was not the one who raised her hand. He was devastated. She said, well, I've been faithful to you. And he said, well, then why didn't you raise your hand? She said, I was embarrassed. Now, that's a true story. And it tells you how absolutely messed up our society has become when someone is embarrassed because they have not been unfaithful. A call for fidelity in our culture sounds like a very lonely voice in a sexual wilderness. What was once labeled adultery and was considered a matter of guilt is now termed an affair. A nice-sounding, almost inviting word that conveys concepts of mystery and fascination and excitement. It's a relationship, we are told, not sin. I won't spend time today citing the statistics of how far our nation has gone into the cesspool of immorality, because you know what's happening all around you, from daytime soaps to nighttime sitcoms to Emmy Award 
winning dramas. Someone is invariably getting in or out of bed with someone to whom they are not married. Some prominent psychologists are, however, calling adultery healthy. It's of little value, however, for us to moan and groan about the deterioration in the culture at large and not pay attention to what's going on in the church. The Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If you think immorality is not a problem in the church, you're hiding your head in the sand. In the 45 years that I have been a pastor, I've done more counseling in regard to sexual sin than for heresy, depression, conflict combined. Those involved have ranged from ushers to elders, from housewives to business executives, from choir members to pastors, from missionaries to denominational leaders. The first thing I want to do is to make clear today, this is a sermon for all of us. It's certainly relevant for those who have sinned in this regard, as well as for those who are currently being tempted. It is terribly relevant for young singles and teens who are growing up in a sex-saturated society, far worse than what I grew up in. It's also relevant for the elderly. Statistics indicate that living together outside of marriage is growing at a more rapid rate in that segment of society than any other, especially among widows and widowers, partly in an effort to beat the Social Security system. Our topic today is even relevant for those who have never sinned sexually and think that it couldn't happen to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12 says, If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. So please don't tune me out, even though this is not a particularly pleasant topic for a Sunday morning worship service. If by addressing this subject I can prevent one person from going down the tubes or one marriage from crashing on the rocks or give hope to one individual who is today facing overwhelming temptation, it will have been worth it. We know what the scriptures teach, don't we? The seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. Hebrews 13.4 adds, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20, extends the prohibition against sexual sin to those not yet married, when it says, flee from sexual immorality, that is, fornication. All their sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. But sometimes we can learn more from real-life examples than from heavily doctrinal passages. Because the truth is clothed in flesh and blood. So we turn our attention to Joseph, 
the eleventh son of Jacob, who was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt. We're going to read the entire chapter of Genesis 39. I invite you to turn there with me. And today we're going to stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. Will you stand? Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. The Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
I heard a few closet Presbyterians say, thanks be to God there. Thank you. The first thing we see in this chapter is that Joseph experiences success and prosperity, explainable only by divine providence. What an incredible story we have here at the beginning of chapter 39. This young man, in a relatively short time, goes from being a slave on the auction block to a personal attendant to Potiphar, to trustee of his whole household, to the caretaker of everything he owned. We're inclined to think that he must have been a man of tremendous competence and character and ambition and skill and energy and integrity. But the text focuses on only one reason for Joseph's success. The Lord was with him. That is mentioned in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 21, in verse 23. Now, I don't doubt in the least that Joseph had skill and energy and ambition and integrity. In fact, we're going to see that he had all those things in abundance. That's actually going to be our topic next week. But none of these factors, or even all of them together, can explain Joseph's success. It was the fact that the Lord was with him. God's blessing is the only thing that can fully explain it. But with the measure of success often comes an increased measure of temptation. Thus, we shouldn't be surprised that Joseph experiences temptation that is powerful, persistent, and sudden. Now, think for a moment about the seduction that Joseph is undergoing here. Why is it so powerful? Well, I think about some of the excuses Joseph might have thought about to indulge this situation. First, he could have said, God allowed me to be sold into slavery. What do I owe him? Or, I've been separated from my family and friends. And who's going to find out? Or, I've been forced to adapt to a new culture that is thoroughly pagan. Everybody's doing it. So why shouldn't I? Or, I didn't go looking for trouble. It came and found me. And that's true. But friends, God holds us responsible for the, not only for the sin that we seek out, but even for that which we fall into. Furthermore, Joseph has natural good looks. It says in verse 6, he was well built and handsome. He could have said, God, you made me irresistible. After all, I'm the son of the beautiful Rachel. You know, beauty can be a curse to those who do not submit that area to the Lordship of Christ. Still further, it's quite possible that Potiphar's wife isn't finding satisfaction in her marriage. We're told in verse 1 that Potiphar is an official of Pharaoh. The word official in Hebrew is usually translated eunuch. Those who worked in the palace were often required to be eunuchs in order to protect the king's harem. If this is the case with Potiphar, his wife 
may have well had some unfulfilled personal needs, and Joseph could have thought, well, I'm just trying to minister to her. And finally, there are no observers. Verse 11 makes it clear there was no one else in the house, probably by Potiphar's wife's own design. You think this isn't a powerful temptation? You're kidding yourself. But please note that the temptation is also persistent and sudden. Look at verse 10. She spoke to Joseph day after day. That's persistent temptation. And then one day she grabbed him and said, come to bed with me. That's sudden temptation. Some people, especially those who are impulsive, find sudden temptation to be particularly difficult to deal with. Others may be able to resist the sudden overwhelming temptation, but they tend to get worn down with the persistent temptation like a dripping faucet. Joseph faced both kinds. But he refuses to yield. The text says he left his cloak in her hand and fled. How do you explain such resistance? I think it's impossible to explain it just as a matter of a strong will. Joseph is no embalmed mummy. He's no plaster of Paris saint lacking red blood cells in his veins. I think the key has to be found in four facts. Joseph had a proper view of sin, a proper view of God, a proper view of others, and a proper view of himself. First of all, he had a proper view of sin. In verse 9, he asked Potiphar's wife, how could I do such a wicked thing? He calls it what it is. Sin is still sin, even when it's dressed up in all its finery, even when it's called something else. In 2007, President Bush nominated Dr. James Holsinger to be the Surgeon General of the United States. He immediately ran into a major roadblock from the Gay and Lesbian Society. Some 17 years earlier, he had stated that homosexual acts are unnatural. Mind you, he didn't even say immoral. He simply said unnatural. And for that major failure in political correctness, he was tarred and feathered as a homophobe and judged by the United States Senate as incompetent and incapable of being the Surgeon General. Strong forces in our culture are working hard to have sinful behavior declared not only legal, but natural, even when God's Word says it is unnatural, as it clearly does with homosexual behavior in Romans chapter 1. The same acceptance, of course, happened long ago in regard to heterosexual sin. The notion that it can be sinful to do something that your body urges you to do has been lost on this generation. The prophet Isaiah speaks loudly to our culture as well as to his when he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Frankly, I think we're seeing a lot of that today. It's one thing to do evil 
and to look for rationalizations for doing it. It's quite another to do evil and call it good. Joseph refuses to do either. He has a proper view of sin. Second, he has a proper view of God. He says to Potiphar's wife in verse 9, How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Here he reminds me of King David, who came clean regarding his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51 by admitting to God, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. On the surface, it seems ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous for David to say he had sinned only against God. He sinned against Uriah. After all, he had him murdered. He sinned against Bathsheba by destroying her marriage. He sinned against the child that was born who died because of David's sin. He sinned against his own family. He sinned against his nation. But clearly what he means is that sin is ultimately against God. And that aspect of guilt is so much greater than any other that the others pale in comparison. A dramatist has told the story of Joseph's seduction in this passage. And in one particularly profound scene, he shows Potiphar's wife preparing herself and her bedroom for the seduction. She puts a a cloth, a, a towel, over her Egyptian god's head. And she says to Joseph, he will not see. But, Joseph says, my God always sees. She wouldn't think of committing this act in front of her husband, but she has no problem doing it in front of her God as long as his head is covered. Joseph's God is different. He sees everything, and that's why Joseph fears him. Third, Joseph has a proper view of others. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Joseph goes on to protest to Potiphar's wife. With me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. Joseph knows the meaning of loyalty. Someone has said that adultery is of the devil if for no other reason because it is the betrayal of an oath and the breach of a trust. But of course it is heinous for many other reasons as well. Joseph is struck by the terrible act of treachery that yielding would involve toward Potiphar. And finally, Joseph has a proper view of himself. Verse 12, he knows his limitations. It says, when she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me, he left his garment in her hand and fled. He didn't flirt with her. He didn't argue with her. He didn't preach at her. He just got the fat out of there. And his choice to flee from temptation is vindicated several times in the New Testament. We already looked at 1 Corinthians 6 where we are told to flee from sexual immorality. And the Apostle Paul tells his young protege Timothy, flee 
the evil desires of youth. Joseph no doubt knows the possible consequences of leaving his coat in her hand, but he also knows the greater danger of going back to get it. He values a good coat less than a good conscience. He values everything, anything less than a good conscience. I wish I could tell you that Joseph's stand here earns him accolades and that he lives happily ever after. But it doesn't quite work out that way. Joseph pays a heavy price for refusing to yield. But God remembers him. Potiphar's wife turns on Joseph and falsely accuses him of attempted rape. Her husband believes her or pretends to. The reason I have some doubt about what he really thinks is that a man of his stature could easily have had Joseph executed for such a crime, but instead he is put in prison. Of course, the place where the king's prisoners were kept was not Club Gitmo. This was a place not fit for a king, but fit for prisoners the king wants to punish severely. It's a dungeon. Prison of any kind is an awful price to pay for purity. But is it too much? The psalmist writes, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. What he really means, I think, is I'd rather be a nobody in a good place than somebody in a bad place. Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26 speaks of another man of God. It says, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Sin is pleasurable, friends, and we all know that. But the pleasures are not permanent. And the consequences of yielding to temptation, unfortunately, can be. Thankfully, God doesn't abandon Joseph there in the prison. Test him? Yes. Severely even. But he doesn't abandon him. Listen again to the last three verses of our chapter. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Did Joseph know in advance that God would reward him this way for refusing to yield? I don't think so. But he knew God was faithful. He believed that. He was willing to bet everything on that fact. Now we've talked today about the problem of sexual sin, which is attacking Christian lives and Christian homes with unprecedented force today. We've seen how Joseph overcame temptation by God's grace, certainly. In these closing moments, I want us to turn our attention inward. 
by asking three important questions. The first is, what should you do if you have been guilty of sexual sin? First, to recognize that sexual immorality is a sin which God can and does forgive. Sexual sin may have greater and more far-reaching consequences than other sin, but it is not more sinful. And as with any sin, the solution is to confess, to repent, and to accept God's forgiveness. Confession literally means to say the same thing God says about our sin, which is that it's inexcusable. In 1 John 1.9, it says, if we confess our sin, the word is a little Greek word made up of two parts, which means to say the same thing as. We need to speak the truth about our sin. True repentance, of course, involves more than just the words, I did it. I think it's a mental and spiritual state which acknowledges an act, accepts the seriousness of it, experiences sorrow over it, rejects all excuses for it, and purposes to stop. I think it is especially the case with sexual sin that we must recognize the danger of repeated failure. I've heard people say, well, I'm already an adulterer, so it doesn't matter if I do it again. Well, friends, it does matter. It matters a great deal. I think sexual sin is kind of like carbon monoxide poisoning. It accumulates in your system, and eventually even a non-lethal dose can kill you. The only way to deal with these sins is radically, immediately, permanently. But accepting God's forgiveness is also critical. Listen to Psalm 103 about the character of God. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Also consider Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. God loves you with an unconditional love. He loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to the cross to die for you, to pay the penalty for your sin. So once you have received his forgiveness, forgive yourself. Release it. Enjoy the freedom for which Christ set you free. The second question I'd like to ask is, what should you do if you are a victim of sexual sin? There are as many victims as there are perpetrators, perhaps more. And the answer is, you must be willing to forgive. But you say, Pastor, 
that decision by my spouse was a breach of faith so terrible and traumatic I will never be able to forgive. In two weeks, I'm going to preach a message entitled Forgiving the Hard to Forgive. It's about Joseph forgiving his brothers who sold him into slavery. And I suspect every one of us has someone in our life who is exceptionally hard to forgive. And if you have been a victim of sexual sin, you are certainly one of those individuals. I don't ask you to forgive that person because they deserve it. Forgiveness is not about deserts. I ask you to forgive because God asks you to forgive. And it's the only way to stop the pain. Here's a question all of us must wrestle with. How much has God forgiven me? Was this sin that was done against me any worse than all the sins I have committed? And has God forgiven me all my sin? One more question. What should you do if right now you are facing overwhelming temptation? I think it's not only likely but probable that there are a number here in the audience who are in that category. Friend, don't dally with the temptation. The person who plays with temptation will inevitably get burned. Remember the word which appears both in Genesis 39 and in 1 Corinthians 6. It's the word flee. That's not a very courageous response to temptation, but it's a smart response, believe me. Would you rather be a hero or holy? I fear that many Christians today, if found in Joseph's exact circumstances with Potiphar's wife, might have a far different reaction than Joseph had. With no intention to go all the way with her, of course, many would see this as a good opportunity to flirt a little, to check out the scenery, store up a few fantasies for future use. And that's the very reason that while Joseph escaped and prospered, many Christian homes are going down the tubes. In conclusion, may I take us back to the fact that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a sanctuary. Let me ask you to compare your treatment of your body with the way we respond to the place where we worship. People often call this a sanctuary. They treat it with a certain amount of respect. They talk a little softer in here. No one would run down the aisle. Certainly no one would swear or smoke in a church sanctuary. But there's nothing sacred about the place where a church meets. The scriptures tell us clearly that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. But the scriptures do tell us that the physical body of the believer is a sacred place. It's a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
Some of us need to improve the maintenance on our temples. If we are willing to live in purity and holiness, the Holy Spirit can dwell within us in power and in glory. John Wesley, perhaps the greatest preacher of 18th century England, once prayed, God, give me 100 men who hate nothing but sin and fear no one but God, and I will take England with the gospel. Joseph was a man who hated nothing but sin and feared no one but God. May his tribe increase. Will you bow with me in prayer? Thank you, Father, that you created us male and female. And for the gift of sexual feelings and physical intimacy, thank you for marriage, which you designed as the proper place for the full expression of those feelings. Lord, help us to believe you when you tell us that our happiness and our fulfillment depends upon obedience to your standards. But I also thank you that our salvation depends not upon us, but upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.